Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, December 2nd. On today's show, we officially kick off our off-season coverage with a conversation about some of the most notable and interesting statistical trends that emerged from the 2021 ATP and WTA seasons. And look, if you're going to talk tennis analytics, there's only one guest to turn to. That is why I am so grateful to be joined today by Tennis Abstract founder Jeff Sackman to help offer our most notable statistical takeaways from the past year of play. Those takeaways include a conversation about whether a key three truly has emerged in men's tennis, about the parity we've seen in the women's game, whether that parity will continue moving into 2022 and the subsequent WTA seasons, of course. We get into the nitty-gritty as well. Just how good was Djokovic's 2021 campaign? Just how good have teenagers like Yannick Sinner, Carlos Alcaraz, Clara Tawson, Emma Raducanu been thus far early in their careers. That and so much more covered on today's podcast. It is a fantastic conversation that, as you can see, hit over the hour and a half mark. That's a testament to A, I always enjoy the opportunity to chat with Jeff whenever possible. B, speaks to the depth we go into. We nerd out. I know you listeners are going to enjoy that fact. That's why I'm extraordinarily excited to share this episode with all of you. Now, I also want to point out before we get there, it's a college contender's day. Here at Crack Rackets, we're talking number eight TCU for the men, number eight Duke for the women. You want to hear our thoughts on those teams? You can by going to the Great Shot podcast feed. You want to hear from the head coaches of those teams? You can by hopping over to our Cracked Interviews feed as well. You can read more about them on the website, CrackRackets.com. See more about them on our Crack Rackets YouTube channels. Again, we try to paint the complete picture for all of you college tennis fans out there as we approach the 2022 dual match season. But... Before we get to the pods, the last thing I have to say, of course, a huge shout out to all of you listeners, to our Crack Rackets Patreon family for your continued listening to this show. It's what makes everything we do here at Crack Rackets possible, of course, on the mini break specifically, always 
have to give a massive shout out to our friends over at Tennis Point who are offering the best prices, best equipment at the best prices. Excuse me. If you have to update any of your swag, just go to tennis-point.com right now. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, that's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. But without further ado, let's get to it. Here is my conversation offering the top five statistical outliers from the 2021 ATP and WTA season with Tennis Abstract founder Jeff Sackman. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. And anytime you finish another ATP or WTA season, there are countless statistical takeaways for us tennis fans to analyze. Joining me on the show today to help me do just that is the guru behind all tennis statistics. Of course, you know him as the founder of TennisAbstract.com, host of the Tennis Abstract podcast, host of the Expected Points podcast, and our friend Jeff Sackman. Jeff, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for the intro, Alex. Oh, it is always a pleasure to have you. I'm curious where you are on this perspective. It feels like since the tour resumed in August, it was a 15-month rat race. Now, there's never really an off-season in professional tennis, and there are still ITF challenger events going on. But I'm curious, do you consider the month of December the tennis off-season? And how are you feeling after that 15-month, just, again, full foot on the throttle action? Well, I, I have a theory that... In, I've got lots of pet theories for things. So unfortunately for you, you've stumbled on one of them. Um, so I, I often compare the the sad state of tennis analytics to that of baseball, which is a tough comparison for tennis to stand up in. And I think a big part of it is the off season that in baseball, you have people who are obsessive fans. I'm not naming any names, but I might've been there myself once. <laughs> and you basically have six months on six months off. And a lot of the big sports have the same pattern. And if you're an obsessive fan, like you don't want the six months off, like you're watching free agent signings, you're thinking about trades, you're like counting the days down to spring training. It's not, it's not like you're thinking, oh, finally, I get a break from baseball. Nobody, nobody thinks that if they're a real baseball fan. So what that means is the sort of people who are into stats and into trivia, like they go really hardcore. Like it's, it, they don't have, you know, Sunday night baseball to watch. So, you know, they crack out their encyclopedias or spend their days on baseball <laughs> reference and, and they just go at it for six months. And in tennis, you know, if, if by the time the season's over, you need a breather, you need to, you know, head to the Maldives with your favorite <laughs> WTA players. And by the time you get back, it's like, it's Christmas. And then you're already hearing about players going to Australia. So there's no time to sit back and, really dig in and do that study you wanted to do or you know really think about what's happening and i mean i'm not i'm not suggesting that the tennis tour you know chop off four months but i wouldn't mind having some more time i've got a lot of stuff i'd like to do before the australian swing hits one thousand percent there are so many different trends it would be nice to try and analyze and I'm pretty sure Mubadala is just a middle finger from tennis organizers to any of us who would like to have a holiday in this business because before you know it that events hits the calendar and like 
you know, Dominic Team's making his return. I'm going to watch. I'm sure many other tennis fans will tune in as well, if not to the live action, then certainly to the YouTube highlights. And, you know, this past week, they've tried to sneak in Davis Cup, some World Team Tennis action. And it's just like, to your point, if you're looking for the statistical trends, who were the biggest risers up the rankings, who were, you know, the under 21 players that stood out, you have like four weeks to try and figure out who's who before challenger action gets going again itf action gets going again before you know it we're at australian open qualifying and it's just like well it's time to turn the page to 2022 i'm curious this is a very nerdy and stupid question but that's what this great shot podcast is all about at what point of the season do you flip the stats leaderboard from last 52 to whatever season is actually being played because for me that happens around august september I never do. It's always Ooh. last 52. Um, and that, that that's, I, I like your ooh as if I'm like, <laughs> as if I'm trolling the world on this one. No, I mean, it's it's just easier for me to do it that way. And I like bigger samples. Like an yeah. Israeli journalist just emailed me yesterday, or not emailed me, interviewed me a couple of days ago. And um, he got a whole mouthful about how bigger samples are always better, like way more than he bargained for. But that that's the general rule. Like, I, 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 I know the off-season stories are always like, so-and-so got a new coach, so-and-so is working harder than she's ever worked, or so-and-so has new tactics in Australia. It's like, fine, maybe, but I'll take 52 weeks of data or 52 weeks minus the off-season over 35 weeks or whatever number you pick. I'll take the last 52 any day of the week. Like it's, it, I'll accept the fact that sometimes the previous season is a little bit different in exchange for having more data. I thought this year in particular, it was important to include at least August on for a while from last year because it really was just the same season carried over over 15 months. And, you know, again, if you're bored over the next four weeks and you want to add a, you know, make it a two-year function on Stats Leaderboard, make it a three-year function, you're not going to get a debate from me, Jeff. You know, I'm not an assignment uh, editor here, but I'm just saying if you need one. Yeah, I, I I know. There's a lot of there's a lot of potential there, and that's a I've gotten variations on that suggestion for years. So I should probably do something about it. A lot of people want more than 50 players. A lot of people want um, data going back further. I think it would be super cool to be able to look at like the 2005 ATP leaderboard or something. Um, for various uninteresting reasons, that would be a little tricky for me to set up. But yeah, it would be great to have. I would I would definitely play around with that. So I'm sure you and many others would too. For lack of a better term, you must get mansplained to so frequently about things that could do better for Tennis Abstract. It's like, what about this? What about this? To which I'm sure at a certain point, and I apologize for getting colorful, but you're just like, dude, you can do it then. You're like, come on, like, get off my back. Yes, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do. I would never have thought to call it mansplaining since I'm probably guilty of that occasionally myself. I and mean, we're, we're, we're spending an hour mansplaining stuff to people right now, so... <laughs> I don't know if we should really cast the first stone here, but, um, but yeah, I, I get a fair bit of that. And I have to say, I know you're, you're involved with, you do some tennis betting, tennis odds stuff. And that's the direction that a lot of sports media is going. And it's interesting to me, but the average, I'm just saying, I'm emphasizing average or median here very strongly to know I'm not referring to everyone, but the average person who bets on tennis is more likely than the average non-better to contact me with suggestions or complaints and more likely to be really annoying. So, yeah, I can I, imagine. 
I do not like the tennis betting world for that reason. And again, the math is super interesting. There are many intelligent, insightful tennis bettors that I like talking to. I'm not, I'm not seeing versions on the whole population, but man, the median tennis better needs to needs to shut up and yeah. I, I do not i do not need to hear from them about things it's because a the median tennis better is just losing money and b yeah ten, yeah and so tennis... well then the 90th percentile tennis better is losing money right <laughs> yeah that's Probably. true yeah I, one would think and so again that's why they're so frustrating it's taking it out on you and saying you lied to me with your numbers and it's like well it's not my numbers it's just my website that compiles them but yeah i mean and in, t- in, in fairness like i i shouldn't complain because i'm talking about about like a couple of annoying emails a week. I'm not I'm not like losing in the quarterfinals of an ITF 25k and getting death threats on Instagram. Like this is all mm-hmm. relative. Like you you invited me to complain about something and I am ready. I am ready <laughs> to go with with those complaints. But I mean in the grand scheme of things, it's a, a few annoying tennis betters is I would say the cost of doing business, but it's not really a business, so I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure it's, it's a like, stupid thing I brought upon myself. Yeah, no, I'm sure it's like, why don't you have percentage of forehands landed cross court? And you're like, well, do some match tracking for me, and that stat actually exists. You can find it. Uh, that's got to be again. I am forever grateful for your website. I know many out there are as well, but yeah, I'm glad. I suppose at least you're feeling some of the pain. You can say you've got that firsthand experience of what it's like to have people, uh, you know, constantly nagging you in your DMs. But with all of that said, uh, the reason we did want to have you on the show today is to do some explaining, do some analyzing and look back at this 2021 season. And, you know, again, it's not that far in the rear view mirror, but we do have 11 months of data for us to go through. Who shot who fell off? What were the notable takeaways? I asked you to come up with a list of five. I have done so as well. There were no parameters beyond that because we just don't believe in rules here on the Great Shot Podcast. And so with all of that said, let's get into our list, Jeff, and I'll, I'll open the floor up to you. Give me your most notable. Let's get into it right away. Your most notable statistical takeaway of 2021. Well, my, my most notable stat is 10. Do you want to know what that is? I love this. Give it to me. Okay. Okay. You want me to spell it out? 10 is the number of different women who reached a Grand Slam or year-end championships final in 2021. If we go back to the one before that, the 2020 French Open, it goes up to 12. So the last six slams plus year-end championships um, have all had different finalists. And you can't get a better encapsulation of the state of the women's tour right now than that. Even if a few of those ladies, I'm I'm not particularly optimistic about like Sophia Kennan, if we go back to the 2020 French open, I'm not really sure where she's at right now or Jennifer Brady. I mean, she's fine, but I don't know if she's going to make another major final, but the fact that the field is so wide open and you can probably name another five women beyond those 10 or 12 who you could see making a grand slam final in 2022. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. It's, it's gotten to the point where I'm not 100% sure it's a good thing. If you'd asked me this six months or a year ago, I would have been 100% in favor of it. And I might have even be on record. I might be on record of saying that on your show. But it's gotten to the point where it, it might have gone too far. It, things might be too wide open. But if they're too wide, I'd rather have it be too wide open than too dominated by a few players. So it's it, it's the right extreme to be at right now. 
Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that because even if you want to just go back to the start of 2020, right, there are three players who have made multiple of those finals. It would be Muguruza, Osaka, and Kennen. And, like, I do think, and this is part of my Muguruza bias, I suppose, I just think statistically and if you watch the level of play, I actually think her best has been better than anyone else's over the past two years when she's been healthy. We can get into that, I suppose, a bit later. But to your point, you're absolutely right. And I've been on a WTA awards binge recently and just postseason awards binge in general and tried to figure out, you know, what, A, do awards matter? And B, what do they tell us? And I'm fascinated to hear your opinion on those two things. But you look back since 2016, you know, a different player has won the WTA year-end player of the year award in every season. And I do think since 2016 on, that kind of encapsulates the era we're in where no one really has been able to solidify themselves at the top of the women's game in the fashion that you know Serena obviously did throughout the 2010s and even prior to that you saw runs from Justine Ennin and Kim Kleisters obviously Venus their success at the top of the game there was a level and degree of consistency to it that just doesn't exist and a statistical measure to back that up and you know I love my top 10 15 20 25 clubs those players that are top 10, 20, you know, et cetera, in both hold and break percentage. Not a single WTA player in 2021, Jeff, was top 10 in both hold and break percentage. And I actually think that also perfectly captures the fact that there really is no dominant force. Now, Ashley Barty came pretty close, and she won over 80% of her matches. And I know there are only 12 men that were born 1970 or later to have won over 80% of their matches in a season. I don't have that number for the women. I imagine it's fairly similar, if not fewer. You're right. Like, parity is the name of the game right now in women's tennis. And I think what's so fun is that, you know, you talk about the fact 15 to 20 women it feels like can win any slam I also feel like though those 15 to 20 women are good enough to win a slam if that makes sense like if Paula Bedosa won the 2022 Australian Open would you say standard deviation wise she is as good as your typical Grand Slam champion no okay but that doesn't. I, I'm not sure that contradicts the point you're trying to make. I mean, I, the average Slam champion. Remember that. Like, I don't know. I can't figure out how many total Grand Slam champions there have been in the Open era. Well, I guess I can. It's like 50 years. So 200 Grand Slam champions. Mm-hmm. Um, like 10% of those are Serena. So, <laughs> yeah. like 10% are Serena. You've got another almost 10% that are that are Martina Navratilova. Another 7% that are Chris Everett. Like that's a, a quarter of your whole population is Serena or Martina or Chrissy. Yeah. So the average Slam champion is not that far below like Chris Everett. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, really, really high bar. But if you were to say like the the average slam champion in the last five years, looking at those names, then no, I mean, I, I, I think Bedosa is in that, in that group. I certainly, I, I certainly think she's a logical, not a, not a number one pick, but maybe even a top five pick. Remember I picked her as my sort of dark horse to the top five for the U S open, mm-hmm. um, which feels pretty good now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a few names in the last five and more in the last 10 who you'd probably put above her, but there's, there's an awful lot that aren't. So, I mean, she wouldn't stand out. I mean, after, after the 2021 U S open with Raducanu and Fernandez in the final, like nobody really stands out. <laughs> you can't get more out of left field than that. But I mean, I'll bet that 
starting with Sabalenka, we haven't mentioned her yet, of course, um, who's yet to make her Grand Slam final. Like The over-under, by the way, was the 12-minute mark, so we hit the over. Nice. Okay. You'll get DMs, by the way, because the money line was 40% hit the over, 60% was on the under. And I, uh, my forecast was in the other direction, so (laughs) I'm... I am responsible for losing people money. Um, but I mean, I'll bet if we, if we spent one minute on this, we'd come up with five people who are equally plausible first-time Grand Slam champions as Bedosa, who who haven't won one yet. Kontavite, we're already up to three. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a f- phenomenal field. And you're right, there are all these people who wouldn't stick out, at least in, in recent years. It's just such a different era than like women's tennis going back to I mean, at least the 60s has typically been dominated by one or two stars at the top. Um, this is just totally new and unprecedented. So with that in mind, and I alluded to this earlier, I'm curious where you are in terms of the importance of postseason awards just in professional tennis period. But B, who is your player of the year on the women's side? Who was, well, I guess there are two different answers. So scrap player of the year. Who to you was the best player in women's tennis in 2021? Probably Barty, right? Uh, so, for the record, Ashley Barty, one of, and I, I think I have it here, one of eight players to rank top twenty in both hold and break percentage. Now, she was second in hold percentage on the season, and her break percentage a career high for her uh, this past year. As I believe she hit, I want to say it was like forty six percent no not 46 percent maybe 42 percent 38 percent something around that range which obviously for her given the backhand return it feels like the one liability in her game sometimes uh, it's indicative of the fact she got better at that this season I mean win percentage wise again an over 80 percent season you don't rip that off that frequently yeah I, I like I agree with you I think she probably was the best on the year and I actually do think statistically it was a pretty dominant season for her yeah, I mean, it, it, to, I know that you spend a lot more time just talking about this stuff than I do. So, you, so you have different incentives. But mm-hmm. to me, my take on tennis year-end awards is that they're dumb and pointless. <laughs> um, at least award. May, maybe you can make a case for like the the coach of the year or sportsmanship. Or I, I don't know. Coach of the year is probably the the most logical one for me. But for player of the year, I just. I'm sorry. I always keep comparing to baseball, but baseball awards make sense. Like if you need to, if you are going to identify the most valuable player, you can have legitimate arguments about that. Um, People make different kinds of contributions. They're all part of a team where the, the, the team results are what really matters in the end. So you can't just calculate like wins above replacement and say this person at the top of this leaderboard is number one end of story. But with tennis, like if if you think the rankings are reasonably fair, why would not the number one person in the ranking ever not be player of the year? Yeah. No, you're right. Isn't that what player of the year is? (laughs) Yeah. Who played the best? Like, you can't say, you can't say, like, okay, Barty's number one, but you have to give 20% of the credit to Craig Tizer. So, some player who had a bad coach should actually be player of the year because she had more to overcome. I mean, you can't make that argument, can you? No, you're right. And it's an individual sport. It's like, how do you recognize who the best player was in any given week? Well, they've won the tournament. So, what other award do they need to symbolize that fact? That said, obviously, award season is enjoyable for fans, and it's different in a team sport. By the way, what that 
what you just indicated to me, would you have not given Mike Trout the MVP award for the past decade? Because statistically, doesn't he deserve it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have the year-by-year year stats at my fingertips, but I, I would give him at least as many MVP awards as he's gotten. I forget, How many has he gotten? I want to say four. Yeah, at least that many. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I remember just this year, the, the debate between like whether it should go to Otani or whether it should go to like Vlad Jr. And like there's a lot of exciting, great players, but I don't know how you look at what Otani's done and even – it's not even a debate like he's so head and shoulder the whole package is so head and shoulders above everybody else and there's always been this argument about like you can't give an mvp to someone on a losing team or even a non-playoff team and it's just bizarre to me i mean unless you want to take some unorthodox definition of valuable then i mean it doesn't matter what team you play for it's not your fault if you're if the rest of your team is bad you can you can generate an incredible amount of value for a losing team and like Mike Trout and Shohei Otani absolutely have. Yeah, well said. That's exactly what the listeners came here to hear today. Um, <laughs> you know what we don't talk no, about? No, shouldn't we talk about the Baltimore Orioles? Didn't we <laughs> talk about that once before? I, you told me you, you had a lot of Orioles fans. You're telling me the Tigers not signing Javier Baez. That, I know that registered on the Jeff Sackman radar. I know you've got some Tigers. You know, you're, you're running the, the formulas, the models, to see if there's going to be some growth from them. No, I they did they sign Baez or did you just say they didn't? I thought they did. Yeah, yeah, I thought they did too. I, I just yeah. misheard you. Yeah, um, yeah, it's. Um, I was surprised. I, did, uh, you know, I'm a little bit behind on keeping track of wherever <laughs> every team is. Um, well, this lockout's never going to end. Let's just let's lock that in right now. I would say no, I, we will have. Oh, I'm trying to like. What's the tennis equivalent? We will have three more Mubadalas, but no, that's too many. But I think we play another World Team tennis season before we play another baseball game. I disagree. I I, I get the I, I see the reasons for pessimism, but I I think Opening Day will be played as scheduled in 2022. Um, I'm optimistic. I think there there's so much money sloshing around. There's there's reasons for both sides to kind of lock in their gains. I think that because there's some because there's so much money, but because there's a danger of some of it going away, um, like neither side is gonna is going to fight for the distant future. They're gonna figure out a way to make it work. And the fact that the fact that so many big deals were signed in the last week um, that makes me think both owners and play at, at least owners are fairly optimistic, and they're the ones doing the locking out. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it, it's easy to be pessimistic. I mean, um, I think most baseball fans have some. By now, they have some strike. It's a horrible memory from their childhood. I certainly do, but no, I think I think it's going to be fine. But also, since you mentioned Mubadala again, as your elder Alex, I I feel like I can give you permission to skip Mubadala. <laughs> I've I, skipped I've, I've skipped Mubadala for so long that before a year or two ago, I wasn't even sure what order the B and the D came in. So it's it's fine. You will enter the Australian swing 100% adequately prepared if you do not even know how to spell Mubadala. I know, but I just – I get the itch because usually I'm hanging out with my family and it's like day eight of them consecutively. And I'm like, I just need some tennis. I'm like, just give me the fix. Um, well, here's and- the thing. There, have you heard about the match charting project? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. During the thing- During – during Mubadala, what I will be doing, I mean, in my extremely limited spare time, what I'll be doing is watching matches from like the 80s 
and charting them, and they will be so much more interesting than Mubadala. First of all, if by the 80s you mean the 1880s, I will validate that. You're right. That's probably what you're watching nowadays. If there was if there was archive video from the 1880s, I would absolutely be doing that. But no, <laughs> alas, there there was yeah. not a lot of not a lot of archive video from the 1880s, let alone of tennis. I will continue to say you put modern Alex into 1880s, it would be 20% Alex Grand Slams. If I get to bring my racket with me and they'd be like, are you a witch with your two-handed backhand? And I'd be like, I am. It's true. I'm not sure that social class-wise you'd be able to enter. (laughs) Oh, don't let my (laughs) – I can play country club if need be. Let me tell you, I would have thrived on a green clay U.S. Open. Well, I'm thrive. sure you could play it, but would they let would they let you in? Uh, I would say I'm Sir Alexander. I would drop every other part of my name, and they'd say, "Oh, Sir Alexander, welcome to the club." And you know, well, it's, it's good you've thought about that. It's, yeah. it's an important thing to have prepared when you get sent back in time to the 1880s with your modern tennis racket. They'd be like, "Oh, where are you a member?" I'd be like, "SWPTC, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club." You guys haven't like, heard of it? Ooh, S- Serena. That sounds. That sounds non-white. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's good. We're exactly where this podcast should be going. By the way, another argument in the big three doesn't get mentioned enough. The ATP year-end award count. Djokovic, seven year-end finals, although that's just ranked number one. Nadal, five. Federer, five. But it's not framed as player of the year awards. Maybe if we framed it that way, people would just end the debate right there, Jeff. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah, they would end the debate right there. (laughs) (laughs) All right, with that said, let's switch gears here. I'm going to offer you my first one. And my first takeaway relates to the stat I monitor all year long, and that, of course, is the top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs. Here's, you know, in the end, on the men's side, there were nine total players to end top 25 in both hold and break percentage. And one of them is Ilya Ivashka. And one of them is Ilya Ivashka. So top 25, you have Rublev, you have Nori. I actually think it makes a lot of sense that those two end up in that tier together, but we can get back to that in a second. Number two, the top 20, Tsitsipas, Nadal. Again, not the weirdest thing in the world to see those two paired in the top 20 club. Top 15 club, you have Ilya Vashka, the outlier. And by the way, if you're making a case for him for most improved player of the year, it should center around this fact. Uh, he was that good at the 250 level, won millions of qualifying matches at the start of the year where he padded those stats. That explains that. You also have the 250 god, Kasper Root, who ends up in the top 15 club. Of course, he ends up making the semifinals of the year-end finals, puts to bed the not actually existing narrative that he he was a clay court specialist. It's just, I suppose, ever, you know, Nick Kyrio said it very loudly. So people started saying, well, you know, to anyone who said it was the ultimate straw man throughout the course Wait, of the year. Just a second. Who's who is Nick? You say Kyrgios? Yeah. If you go who's back. That? So I don't think you've hit the 1930s part of your newspaper deep dive. You'll see him in there. Don't worry. He'll, okay. he'll, he'll get on your list. But, um, you know, again, he – Casper Ruud, very good, top 15 club. But only three players, Jeff, three players end up in the top 10 club. It's Djokovic, it's Medvedev, it's Zverev. And here's the foundation of my point, which I have emphasized quite frequently over the past couple of weeks here on this podcast. But, again, just looking at the stats from the year, I think it's laid out clearly – We have a definitive top three. It's not a big three, but it's a key three. 
And those key three are Novak Djokovic, Daniil Medvedev, and Alex Zverev. And I do think they have separated themselves with all due respect to Stefano Tsitsipas, who the moment we hit the clay courts, hops into that group as well as a threat to win any tournament he enters. And you could argue Medvedev drops off a bit, but we can get there. But I just think, again, throughout the course of this year... The year in finals were a pretty good uh, encapsulation of this fact. And just, you know, again, there were only four guys to make the fourth round of every slam this year. It's Zverev, Djokovic, Medvedev, Berrettini. You want to go win percentage against opponents ranked outside the top 50. You want to go against the top 50. You want to go against the top 20. You want to go against the top 10. You want to go quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. These guys are in the top five of just about every statistical category. They're the three members of the top 10 club. It's not a hot take to say the number one, two, and three players in the world are the best three on tour. But I think they have finally separated themselves, and I think this is more about Medvedev and Zverev from the rest of the pack. Would you agree or disagree with that? Yes, with small reservations. I think it's it's a good point, and it was it, it was clear in the ELO even before the tour finals that they really stood out. That where Zverev landed in the draw um, had an effect on the draw because he is so much so head and shoulders above the rest of the pack outside of the top two, of course. So that I agree, like based on what they've done, where I would differ a little bit is I think if you take injuries out of the picture, then I think sits a possibly with there with there with them. Um, and if you take injuries out of the picture and forecast out 12 to 18 months, I think Berrettini should be with them too. Uh, that might be a, a little bit more far-fetched. It's certainly a little more optimistic, but I mean, Berrettini has shown flashes of being better than you think he should be on clay. Uh, I think I think before the injury struck, he was ready to break through. So it might just be wishful thinking, but I really want them to be a top five, and I really want Zverev to be number five of the five. Sure. But, yeah, I mean, it, at the same time, if, if someone else were saying this to me, I'd say, well, health is part of the game. Like, you've got to stay healthy to succeed. So in that regard, like, yeah, those three guys are out there every week, and they're generally playing their best when they're out there. So Sitsipas and Berrettini have failed on that score. It's tough to know how much of that is luck or preparation, how much of that is likely to linger. So if you're making your bets for the year-end top three in 2022, then – yeah, I think it would be a mistake to pick anybody else. And I mean, that that's probably the the most important version of that question is like, who who do you honestly predict or who would you put your money behind being the top three 12 months from now? And yeah, I can't imagine picking a different three guys than them. To your point about the ELO ratings and how that impacted the U.S. Open projection, it was fascinating, fascinating for me. And yes, this probably epitomizes my nerdiness, but you're right that Zverev was on Djokovic's side of the draw. You could see it by the time we hit the second round where it's just like, all right, Medvedev's the favorite now because he does not have to go through, you know, Zverev or Djokovic on that other side. And because, you know, Berrettini wasn't playing his best tennis and, you know, from a uh, from the hard court side, Stefano Tsitsipas just doesn't quite have the juice from an ELO perspective on the hard courts that he does on other surfaces. Uh, that was notable. Like, it, that was the first time, to be honest, that was the start of the formation of this take where it's like, hey, the metrics kind of say it pretty clearly. And you look for Alex Virov this season, he lost nine times on hard courts. One of them was to Rusevori, first round Miami, right after he had won Acapulco. 
He also lost, I forget if it was to Bublik or to Fucevic in Rotterdam. I know Medvedev also lost first round in Rotterdam. That's, you know, first match post-Australia, whatever. He also lost 7-6 in the third to Taylor Fritz, Indian Wells. Other than that, the six hardcourt losses were to Djokovic or Medvedev. You know, Medvedev, it's a very similar line of results, obviously, for Djokovic this season. Medvedev, Zverev, and PCB, those were the foes for him on hard courts. That's really it, and who really cares about that PCB match because he was at the Olympics to get gold, not any other medal. The thing for me with Tsitsipas, you know, 25.5% break percentage this season. It's a career high. It's 4% above his average. He broke 29.1% of the time in his 23-5, and five, uh, 28 clay court matches. That would be seventh on the ATP stats leaderboard for the season. That's obviously elite of the elite, and he becomes a top 10 guy when he's on a clay court. Hold percent, uh, break percentage drops to 23.8, Jeff, in the 44 uh, hard court matches he played this season. That would rank about 28th, 29th, 30th. You know, that is a vulnerability still. The one-handed backhand, it's gotten better as a return, but it's still attackable. And I think that's the difference between he and Zverev, Medvedev, Djokovic. Is just like, what's the weakness for those other three guys? I mean, obviously, Novak Djokovic is in a separate category, still, forever, and what he did at age 34, it's a joke. Like, statistically, this was his third best season, and that's hilarious. It just, I don't know why, but to me, I find that extraordinarily funny. But when I look at, again, the top 10 club is, is the epitome of, okay, I've minimized the weaknesses, right? And you look for Zverev this season, career high in just about everything. And we were wondering, how much better can he get for someone who's been so good since he was 19 years old? And again, anytime you bring up Alex Zverev, Go read Ben Rothenberg's pieces, Racket Magazine, Slate.com. He faces serious allegations of physical and emotional abuse uh, that he, you know, from his a former girlfriend of his, Alia Sharipova, and the ATP currently investigating him. Now, we haven't learned much about that investigation, but, you know, given that he's allowed to play on the court, I think it has to be said. He, Medvedev Djokovic, have separated themselves, Jeff. Yep. And that's it. It, 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 since you since you said Djokovic is... is... I don't remember your exact words now, but like head and shoulders above, like in his own category. That's a good segue to one of my other stats, which I'll Beautiful. give you now. Lay it on me. So my ELO ratings, I have overall ELO ratings. I know you know all this, but Alex, maybe some of your listeners haven't Please. been studying as hard. <laughs> so I have surface specific ELO ratings, which are, are, are a combination of just using only that surface and using the overall ratings. And they're designed to be predictive on each surface. So Hardcore ELO is the num is the calculation I figured out that is most predictive of results on that surface. And before the tour finals, Djokovic and Medvedev were basically tied in hardcore ELO. And it, it, it created some interesting things with where Zverev landed and, and how that forecast worked out. But after the the tour finals, they both they both got some wins. Of course, they both didn't get all wins, but the result meant that Daniel Medvedev is now the leader in hardcourt ELO. It's by a grand total of eleven point six points. So it's I mean it's basically a rounding error, but it was a rounding error before, just in the other direction. Now, after chasing down Djokovic for all these years, uh, in at least according to hardcourt ELO, Medvedev is slightly ahead of Djokovic, which translated into what it what really counts. That means that this algorithm favors Medvedev when the two of them play on a hard court. So, I mean, if they stay the same rating and they face each other in the final in Australia, my forecast will say like 51% Medvedev. And that's 
pretty sure that's never happened before in a head-to-head. It's been a long, long time since someone else has been ahead of Djokovic in hardcore-specific ELO. Uh, and here we are, Daniel Medvedev number one. That is remarkable. And you look at their hard-court records over the last 52 weeks, Medvedev 47-8. and eight. He's got an 88% hold percentage, which is, you know, the 90% club, Isner, Rayonich live in there. If you're holding over 90% of the time, and by the way, John Isner, the only player to hold over 90% of the time, um, this season, that that's the elite of the elite. Medvedev's at 88% there. He's breaking serve 32.3% of the time. If you're over 30%, just think about it like this. You're breaking serve three out of every 10 games, so you're getting about three breaks every two sets. That's going to be a winning formula. I mean, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. He's holding serve, you know, at a rate of a prime John Isner. He's breaking serve at a rate of a prime Djokovic and Nadal. And, you know, it's interesting Djokovic pretty much matches him. Like, Djokovic hold percentage 88.9%. The break percentage 31.2. Zverev's a little bit lower than both of those guys. He holds 87% of the time. Break serve 25.3%. But, like, that is remarkable. Particularly given, obviously, I think even if you don't want to say he's the greatest player of all time, we all agree Novak Djokovic is the greatest hardcourt player of all time. Right, Jeff? And, like, statistically... Medvedev has matched him now, and there was a point from his run to the Paris title last year through the Australian Open final this year where he was both holding serve over 90% of the time and breaking serve over 34% of the time. That like breaks every other person he every other player he faced was top 10. Yeah, and it's just like he broke the numbers, Jeff. He broke the numbers. So obviously he's the first guy of the next gen cohort, guys born 1996 or later, to earn a Grand Slam title. It is interesting to see because on a hard court right now, it just feels like, again, I, in particular, these three guys have separated themselves. I don't know why. I think our list, my listeners are aware of this fact, but it's just something about the way Zverev beat him in that ATP Tour final. It does feel like Zverev's best is still better than Medvedev's. Medvedev's floor is higher, but I just – like the fact that he surpassed Djokovic and Elo, it doesn't shock me. It really doesn't. Well, do you think people were all saying that the touring courts were a fast surface? I'm sure you've talked about this with other people. That is, can that explain Zverev looking so much better or winning that match against Medvedev? I mean, the average hard court match they're going to play against each other is not going to be on a surface that fast, right? Yeah, but at the same time. Djokovic, I mean Djokovic, Zirev, is there any reason to think, I, I look at, you know, him, I think on any sort of surface, like I really don't think it matters, he was right there at the US Open, he, in my opinion, as close as he came to beating Djokovic in New York, I actually think he came closer to beating Djokovic in Australia, where he was up breaks in three of the four sets, and ended up losing in four tight sets, like, I don't think it matters, he plays, he plays all of these guys close anywhere, and it's just like, when he serves his best, I do think he's just a little bit more aggressive. Like, the match is on his racket against Medvedev. He's got the weapons that misfire more. And certainly, you know, we saw the third set breaker in Paris and or in uh, in London or Turin, wherever they played the year-end finals. And Zverev got tight, as he so frequently does. And I do think mentally that's definitely a differentiator between the three of them. But, like, yeah, fast surface helps, but I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. Like, I don't feel any worse about Zverev on a slow hard court versus Medvedev as I do on a fast one huh 
I guess maybe I'm overstating what the difference is. I think I, I would definitely give more of an edge to Medvedev, the slower, the hard court, but I don't have the numbers to back that up. So you know, I, I'm not I mean, not he's won the last six against Zverev uh, prior to Zverev beating him in that tour final. So like it's a, I would bet the numbers back you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's it's tough to even have the numbers for that, especially when you're looking at the court speed of the tour finals. I, it's when I've tried to analyze court speed of the tour finals, the fact that the player mix is so different throws yeah. things off. Like the, the people who make the tour finals tend to be so much better returners than the average player on tour that you can't really judge by how many points the servers are winning, which is usually a good indicator of how fast the surface is. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of running through what the study would look like in my head and already figuring out why it won't work. <laughs> but uh, so I guess we're left with speculation of, unless I were to look at the, all those other matches and figure maybe maybe Zverev was closer in the faster hard court matches or something like that. But but yeah, I mean, to, to your point, I mean, it's not like Zverev is no Isner. I mean, sometimes he serves really well and he, he looks like a serve bot. But I mean, then he and Medvedev will play this bruising 20 shot rally that goes the way of Zverev and like obviously he's so much more than that and obviously he can win on clay courts just not against Ilya Ivashka so <laughs> it's it, I, yeah I take your point it, it's it, it the surface obviously doesn't determine the result um and and you wouldn't bet against Zverev on a slower hard court against almost anyone else that that that's certainly true so I did it, it's it's a minor factor if anything yeah no completely fair well then with that in mind Again, I'm going to give you another crack at number three. Um, what's your next takeaway? Let's see. Well, since we're talking about Djokovic, let's prolong this for a little bit more. Um, I've got a stat on my my leaderboard. I'm sure you're familiar with it. That I call return points one in play. Mm-hmm. So it's return points that aren't aces or double faults. So basically, if it's possible to get a racket on it, uh, how many points are you winning? And and returners have a little bit of an effect on ace rate so you're losing that but it's not much doesn't really matter so this year the the tour leader in return points won when you got the racket on the ball was big surprise novak djokovic at 44.5 percent and it's not a mind-blowing number i mean he's he's done it before i don't have them all handy but he's been higher before he's um I think I, I looked up this for just general return points one this was his sixth best season of his career which is i mean out of his career that's that's great it's but it's not mind-blowing stuff the thing that blew my mind is he's number one and number two or number three is nadal but nadal played basically his whole shortened season on clay so djokovic on all surfaces made more of those returnable return points than nadal did playing almost entirely on clay and that's just that's the mind-blowing part to me that he was returning that well on hard courts um that he still ended up number one in that category is Djokovic's success this season a reflection of his level being that outstanding in your mind or is it a reflection of a diminishment in you know the changing of the guards in the field where we're at because uh, that's the question that I've been tossing around in my mind is just like is Novak Djokovic still as good as he was at the peak of his powers and I really like as good as he is right now I don't think he's as good as he was in 2011 I don't think he's as good as he was in 2015 I think the match he played against Nadal in the French Open semifinals was as good as it gets for Novak Djokovic but he doesn't find that level with the routine ease that he did in those years that said 
I mean, he's just a much better match manager now. Like, it, it's so clear in the biggest moments and in the biggest points. He just has a command that, obviously, Federer and Nadal, it's hard to have that command against them in their primes, period. But was Djokovic that much better this season? Because if you go by the statistics, the answer is yes. He was as close to as good as he's ever, you know, ever, almost every metric is above his career average this year. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, logic says he can't possibly be as good as he was. I mean, I don't think there's anyone ever who's peaked at age 34 or even close. Um, But on the other hand, if you look at the greatest players and you think about how much, how many advances have been made in in fitness and training, even before the fitness and training stuff, um, the greatest players don't really follow the typical aging curves. They have some aging curves, but it's not it's not linear like we tend to think of having like a peak at age 28 or something or 26 and then steadily going downhill until you're not good enough anymore and then you retire but that's not how it works like you might go a little bit downhill a little i mean a tiny tiny bit until something happens like either you lose your motivation or you get injured and miss six months and never really hit your old level again there's there's among the best players, they tend to stay pretty close to where they're at for a long time. So A, the best players tend to extend their peaks longer than other players do. Um, B, they don't they don't decline as fast, even when they do start declining. Um, and C, you have this era now with Djokovic probably at the forefront of this, where they're taking advantage of every last um, benefit they can get out of fitness and training. So what Djokovic is able to take advantage of now is something that's unprecedented just even 10 years ago so all of which is to say yes it's illogical to think he could be have he could be at his career best at age 34 but if any player in the history of tennis has been at or near their career best at age 34 Djokovic is the most likely um so if, if, if you take the opposite perspective that Djokovic is not near his career best and you look at the numbers you're pointing out and say, okay, well, the numbers say he's close to his career, career best. Therefore, if he's not at his career best, therefore the field must be considerably worse. And two years ago, I might've gone along with that, maybe even without arguing with you. I don't believe it now because he's getting all these matches with, like you say, Zverev and Medvedev who are playing so well. Okay. The return numbers are so great. And even some of the players who feel like kind of second tier elite guys, like maybe Rublev and Hercotch, like they're serving big. Like if, if you're putting up Novak level return numbers against those guys, you're returning really, really well. So I, I'd be willing to accept that the field is a little bit weaker than it was in, in Novak's prime, but I don't think it's much. So, I mean, I, I lean more towards like at least half the explanation being Djokovic is just a freak who doesn't age like normal people. Um, yeah. at, at some point, I think he'll fall off a cliff. And I mean, for him, that might be a cliff down to number six in the world. But yeah. the, it, the main point is like, I think the more you look at, at trends like this, the more you learn it's not linear. So mm-hmm. people's careers end in a couple of big steps. They don't gradually end over five years. So what I've been I've been saying this for years about Djokovic is like if you assume 
nothing bad happens and you forget about the, the the vaccination stuff then you probably have to forecast Djokovic for two slams this year and ending the year at number one and you know maybe number two behind Zverev or behind Medvedev sorry um but every year that goes by the farther he gets into his 30s the higher the chance is that he hits one of those clips and maybe it's an injury and uh, who knows what it what it would be but it eventually happens to everybody uh and I don't know whether, I mean, I, I'm not sure what an actuary would say about this. Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 25%. You could probably model it somehow, but again, he's a freak. So, I mean, I don't know how you model it for someone who's basically historically unique in his sport, but that's the, that's the question. It's not how much will he decline this year? It's what are the odds he will fall off a cliff? Um, and I don't think they're high. So I think you end up with this default assumption of, yeah, he's definitely top three at the end of 2022. There's just this, small chance that he's retired or has a season that looks like Nadal's where he plays 30 matches or something like that. Um, but those are your options. It's, it's sort of um, it's feast or famine. It's not like 90% feast. Yeah. A couple of things off of that. A, I, I'm not rooting for this. No one is rooting for this. I do think there would be some poetry if at the end of their career, Rafa, Federer, Djokovic are all tied at 20 slams because Djokovic couldn't play any more slams because he refused to get vaccinated. Like, I do think there's some poetry there, Jeff, and that would be— you. We have different definitions of poetry. <laughs> I didn't say it's more Edgar Allan poetry uh, than, okay. you know, your traditional uh, stuff. But, yeah, B, you know, I— I got old takes exposed for the first time. I was pretty flattered uh, during this year's U.S. Open. And by the way, I think they have to issue a retraction because I tweeted out at the end of 2020 that, you know, I was concerned that, yeah, I'm pretty sure Djokovic is going to surpass 20 slams, but how much more than that is he going to get? Because, you know, his game is so predicated on physicality. And just have we ever seen a 34, 35, 36-year-old maintain the degree of physicality he has shown throughout the course of his career at that age? And, you know, Rafa's come pretty close, although you see his body fighting him to the point where it's, you know, will we ever see Rafa play another U.S. Open, I think is a fascinating question going into 2022. Will his body hold up for that long throughout the course of the year? Um you know, why Why I fired off the take, and I was like, I don't know how much, I think he's going, I mean, he's going to pass 20, I just don't know how much higher than that is, because it's like, if Djokovic loses a half a step, or a full step, does his game remain as effective, and one of, you know, obviously why I got old takes exposed is because he then won th- the first three Grand Slams of the season, and was a match away from sweeping all four, although he didn't win all four, that's why I shouldn't have, I feel like I shouldn't have been exposed, I should have just been, perhaps, shamed a bit not quite exposed it wasn't an exposing it was just a shaming um but like with the progression in his serve and again hold percentage above his career average third best number of his career i believe this season and the first serve win percentage above his career average and even the first serve percentage continued to improve so he's winning more first serve points and making his first serve more frequently obviously anecdotally that feels like a fix at the same time jeff again you've watched the djokovic era as closely as anyone like the game is predicated on physicality don't you worry him losing a half step would be more significant than the way fetters you know become more efficient i suppose in his movement aka just doesn't play defense the way he once did 
hey, I think he probably has lost the half step. And that's yeah. what's so remarkable. I, maybe we've talked about this before. I know I've I've said it into a microphone that what's really remarkable about Djokovic is that he's improved faster than anybody else on tour. Like you talk about the serve numbers being so good. Like we've seen his serve improve. Yeah. And there are players who, you know, come along, crack the top 10 when they're, how old was Kyrgios when he cracked the top 10? I want to rip on Kyrgios now. Or he, <laughs> he didn't actually, I'm he didn't crack the top 10, so the ripping is, has concluded. But <laughs> these players arrive and are great when they're young, and they never really improve, not naming any names, cough, Nick, Kyrgios, cough. But th there's a lot of other examples, like like Nick. Um, and in order to stay at the top for a long time, you need to keep improving. We've seen Medvedev's a great example, Zverev's an okay example. Um, but Djokovic, to me, is the example. He is the, the prime guy who has shown that you can get to the top of a sport and keep getting better and he's had to i mean I, I think physically i'm saying he's a freak and he is but if he went from being number one what 10 years ago for the first time and now being 34 and still being number one it, it, it would be in defiance of physical laws if he hadn't lost a half a step at least yeah. so he's managed to make up for it with, you know, court smarts and serving better and more experience or whatever all these factors are. So I think it goes back to what I was, what I'm talking about, about the feast or famine is that he can manage that until he can't. So losing half a step. Okay. He can make up for that. Maybe losing three quarters of, the, of a step. It's going to be harder, but I'll bet he can still do it at some point, but yeah, you're right. He's going to be, so old in tennis years that and his his body won't be able to keep up that either he'll get injured or he'll get slower enough that he won't be able to make up the difference anymore and it won't be the difference between number one and winning one slam instead of three and being number three in the world it'll be the difference between number one and maybe hanging on to a spot in the top 10 or maybe worse like he, he won't be able to manage anymore and i'm guessing he'll retire pretty shortly after that uh so the the question is like I, I think it's it's a reasonable take every year to say there's a good chance he's done and obviously he's not done right now. I mean if he plays in Australia, he's I just explained why he wasn't the favorite in Australia, but he's very close to the favorite in Australia. But there will come a time very soon where maybe we've seen it happen in Nadal, where suddenly Nadal isn't the favorite at the French. Can we say that right now? I mean, once he's not the favorite anymore. He goes downhill pretty fast. We, maybe Nadal will prove me wrong. This will be an old take exposed. But we, <laughs> we saw it happen with Federer. It seemed like Federer was on top. And then all of a sudden, he's great, but he's not He's not one of the top guys right now. Um, even yeah. if he's healthy, we don't expect him to come back and be number two again. So that's going to happen. It could be, like I say, it could be in February or it could be in February of 2028 and make us all look really dumb. Um but it, it's it's impossible to know. We can't just say, you know, subtract one tenth of a step per year and work out the math from there. That's not how it works. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if it did work that way, though? That would just make life so much easier. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with anything you said there other than, you know, again, to also mention I'm not the most religious man. But, like, if I was Novak Djokovic, I would also be spiritual because that man is blessed. Like, you're just – every time you're like, oh, maybe this is the year he loses half a step. And to your point, it's like, nope, not this year. It's like, well, you know, maybe this is the year that just, you know, he goes for a slide and does the full split. And it's like, wait, I can't do that anymore at age 34. And it's just like, nope, that flexibility is part of the reason his longevity has, you know, sustained the way it has 
yeah, the guy has been sensational from start to finish of his career. And speaking of start to finish of their career, let's go back to the start. And just a, a fun fact for you, uh, Jeff. And, you know, again, this is how I'm going to craft my next take. And I'll limit my list down to three because I don't want to keep you here for four hours. I'll try to keep you here just for one. But um, I've got two more takeaways for you. This one, I'm curious, again, growth curves, age curves. I know Andrew Burton has done work with this, and he's done it on a couple different platforms where he's compared the trajectories of certain players, and he does it by max points accumulated in a season at certain ages relative to others on the growth curve. I did not do that. I just went by pure record. You know, we'll go win percentage. We can break it down with more depth. But obviously, there's a changing of the guards happening right now. In men's Carlos Alcaraz is pretty good, huh? Well, there we go. You beat me to the take, didn't you? You well, saw. I saw, I... I saw your tweet. You already tweeted this, Alex. Yeah. Well, okay. So you, you, you beat... tagged me in the tweet. Oh, How did I, I not really? see it? I, I did so. tag you, didn't I? So I have the final numbers for you. Yeah, of course I did, via Tennis Abstract. So you knew where I was going here. I shouldn't have telegraphed it. See, this is you once tweeted, and it's, it was such a good point, and I showed this to my brothers, and they both laughed significantly. So, hey, great shot to you, that I am going to commit a crime someday. I am going to be on the run. <laughs> I'm going to create a burner account because I won't be able to stay away from Tennis Twitter, and that is going to give away my location. And I was like, yep, that's 100%. You, you get me. Um, but again, here are the numbers, and I had to adjust because it's not the cleanest thing. I didn't want to go, well, let me go to June 3rd, 2006 to find his exact 20th birthday. But I have the numbers through players twenty age 20-ish, 20 and a half, you know, right up to age 20 season for some of the guys of late. You go to Rafa. He was 183 and 51 in tour-level matches, 78% win percentage. Now, he had already won multiple French Open titles, made a Wimbledon final as well, tons of success at the Masters level, just, you know, number two in the world behind a prime Federer. He's the gold standard in the modern era of what is possible before the age of 20 on the ATP Tour. You look at some of the other guys, Novak Djokovic, who had made a U.S. Open final at the end of that 2007 season, had made a Wimbledon semifinal, made that sunshine double run where he lost Indian Wells final but won Miami. He was 121 and 51 in tour level match or overall in ATP matches, I believe. That includes Davis Cup, uh, 70% win percentage. He had a 73% win percentage overall if you include challengers, futures stuff. I think it's important to look at Alex Zverev, who was the heir apparent of that original next-gen cohort for so long. He had a 63% win percentage through his age 20 season, 117 and 70 overall. He had won a couple of Masters titles in Canada, in uh, Rome as well. Now, hadn't quite had the success at the Slams. One, I think, fourth round at Wimbledon was it, but obviously he was very, very good through age 20. Roger Federer, he was fine. 58% win percentage, 171, and, you know, it had some success. Fourth round, 2001 U.S. Open. Quarterfinals, 2001 Roland Garros. Fourth round, uh, quarterfinals, 2001 Wimbledon, where, of course, he knocks off top seed Pete Sampras in five sets. He had had some notable results. But this is both an Alcaraz and a Sinner takeaway for you, Jeff. And it's the fact that you look at Yannick Sinner now, 
74 and 42 uh, overall in ATP Tour matches. That's a 64% win percentage. Obviously, the big result for him, he makes uh, the final of the Miami Masters. He's made a quarterfinal at Roland Garros. He's made, you know, that City Open run to the title here this past uh, summer, which, you know, it wasn't the most loaded draw, but he beat Jensen Brooksby, who we both know is the GOAT. So, obviously, well, he was in the that. capital of the United States. Exactly. There's so some that, cachet there. That's at least equivalent to the Sampras Wimbledon win from Federer. Uh, point being, Yannick Sinner, 64% win percentage. That's better than Fed. That's better than Zverev. A little bit behind where Nadal and Djokovic are. Carlos Alcaraz is on track, though, Jeff. 47-19 and 19 through his first 66 ATP Tour-level matches. Wins the next-gen finals and, you know, wins the title in Umag. Has, you know, beats Tsitsipas and makes the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. Has yet to make it past the third round of Roland Garros, but it feels like that might happen tomorrow. Now, unfortunately, there are a couple of 15K uh, matches I see that were snuck into this tennis abstract here. So you've got to take out, let's see, 10, 14, and 1. So you take out a 14, 1. That's a lot. So I think it's 33 and 18 overall, which obviously... Obviously, would drop his numbers uh, quite a bit, but you know, 107 and 37 through his first 144 pro matches, a 74% win percentage. I mean, we're talking about most improved award on a, on a prior podcast, and my argument was, well, it's not most improved for Alcaraz. He just has a bigger sample size now, and it's like, oh, okay, no, he is that good. But when you look at Sinner, you look at Alcaraz. My takeaway coming out of 2021, Jeff, is that they're on pace. Like, I'm not saying they're going to win 10 Grand Slams. I'm not saying they're going to win 15. I'm not even saying they're going to win five. I am saying they're going to win one. Like, and I know that's not a hot take, but they're on the short list. Like, I, I will tell you my short list. It's, you know, after this season, Medvedev's obviously already done it, but Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas, Sinner, FAA, and now you have to throw Alcaraz on that list. Those are my six locks to win men's slams in tw- in the 2020s. And I just like these guys, what they've done is just ridiculous, Jeff. No Brooksby, really? Uh, I've thought about it. I don't want to put that sort of pressure on him. Okay. Here's – I, I can't disagree with saying Sinner and Alcaraz are going to be great or they've done everything they need to do to look like someone who will be great. That's a really weird way of building a sentence, but I think <laughs> sure. it's correct. That I mean, there's only so much you can do up to age 20 unless you're Rafael Nadal to make it look like you're going to be great, and they've done all of it. Um, the little bit of cold water I can throw on it is that you can never take improvement for granted. And mm-hmm. when you're looking at a young player and saying, they have done X, therefore they're on track to do Y, you are taking improvement for granted. Um like I know you know Colette Lewis and her her mantra is to to celebrate accomplishments, not potential, mm-hmm. um, which she does a great job of. And I think a lot of us would be better off if we did more of. Um, and I know it's super tempting to always talk about potential, but what I would do if I were making a study out of this, and maybe I should since you're my new assignments editor apparently, <laughs> is... Okay, you compared Alcaraz and Sinner to the big four and Zverev, uh, or the big three and Zverev. Are there other players in ATP history who have won 65% of that many tour-level matches up to that age? I mean, I I don't know the answer off the top of my head. I'm guessing there aren't a lot. Well, Um, so not to interject, I... I do know the answer to the question because I went through and I went in the modern era. And the truth is, it's, it's a very, very narrow list of guys. Now, you know who sneaks onto that list? 
Marin Chilich. Oh, yeah. I was going to say Evgeny Korolev, but so yeah, he's on a, little, a different list. Exactly. So I really only did 21st century players, the ones that, you know, the, I know the data is really good at tennis abstract. I just didn't want to. The truth is I was too lazy. I'm like, all right, this is enough. You don't have to go your research past this. Um, I did the same thing for the women as well, which will get me to take number two uh, momentarily. But the short list is like Andy Roddick was hovering right around that, you know, we'll call it the if it's not the Mendoza line, what do we want to call it? What's the tennis equivalent of like, we got to find that, that player equivalent to be like 60% as a teenager. The Federer was at 58. Is it the Federer line? Well, that would sound like a totally different thing. I don't know what it would sound like, but if you're talking about something that's like a, a threshold of possible yeah. greatness, I think Federer is not the name you're looking for. Yeah. Um, the I mean, Ranich line, the Dimitrov line. I mean, he was Chil- so Dimitrov and Rayonich are nose. They weren't okay. at that level, but it's Chilich is the most modern uh, version of it. Burdich is on that short list as well. Roddick's on that short list as well. I wanted to look it up because I figured he would be Leighton Hewitt's on that short list as well. I believe Richard Gasquet is on that short list, and I'm pretty sure that's the uh, oh Delpo is on that short list. Uh, here it is. Here's the list in front of me. Yep, that's all the guys. Like, that's it. That's and, your list right there. And then Djokovic, Nadal, obviously, Zverev on that list, too. What exactly have they done? They have won over 60% of their ATP Tour matches through that age 20-ish season. So Gasquet is kind of what I'm talking about. Is Gasquet was a super prospect even when he was 15 or something. He's the GOAT. Like, I'm pretty sure he's the best 14-year-old ever. Yeah, him or Donald Young. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or Kozlov. Yeah, actually, that's true. So probably probably Gasquet, and I mean Gasquet's had a fine career, but compared to what he was in his teens, every step of his career has been a disappointment. And I mean, it's not really fair to him that expectations are so high that spending years in the top ten—I think he spent years in the top ten—is qualifies as a disappointment. But not winning multiple slams based on where he was when he was sixteen, like that, doesn't tally with what. I think we would have forecast him to do so that that's all I'm saying is that it's 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 easy to say okay these guys based on their teenage performance are more likely than all those other guys who are in their age cohort to go on and win five slams um but we're assuming improvement and not all players improve. It might be better to have a weakness like Alcaraz and, and have a lot of room to grow on the serve than be someone who can't return a serve. I think that's probably a fair, a, a fair point and probably true. Um, so maybe Alcaraz is more likely to fulfill that potential improvement than some other guys his age are. Um, but again, like if you're saying, well, okay, he's, he's going to grow. He's going to hit his serve 10 miles an hour faster. He's going to win this many more points. He's going to hold this many more games. He's going to win this many more matches. Like, okay, maybe. That sounds pretty easy to go from winning 60% of your tour-level matches to 70% or 80% of your tour-level tour matches. Nothing standing in your way there at all. Uh, it just doesn't happen for everybody. So that that's my – that's my party pooper kind of take whenever we start making projections is it's, it's, it, it's maybe again, they're the most likely, but historically, if you have to bet whether a player is going to improve or not bet that they're not fair. Here's where I disagree. Yannick Sinner, first three seasons dating back to 2019, 2019, 72.5% hold percentage, 2020, 80.3. 2021, 81.1. Now, we're not on the soccer six years consecutive train yet, 
But that's getting better, addressing the weakness. And you see it in, again, the way his first serve win percentage has improved. His second serve win percentage has improved. And I think you see it manifest itself in his act. You know, if you're watching him play, that there is a little bit more bite on that first serve. The second serve doesn't hang up quite as frequently as it does, but it still feels like there's room to improve there for Sinner. Obviously, for Carlos Alcaraz, the second serve stands out right away. But you look for Carlos Alcaraz in his first season, and again, in ATP-level matches, not even including the challenger stuff he was breaking 30.8 percent of the time this season that's over the 30 percent line that's a top five number amongst you know top 50 players at age 18 he was breaking serve 39 percent of the time jeff at the challenger level again that's two breaks of serve in every five service games if you're doing that you're just winning all of the freaking time and it does feel like you know again for carlos alcaraz how good of a volleyer he is how good of a mover he is how complete the game is ditto for yannick sinner that it feels like the only time they show their teenage side of themselves is on serve is like the best possible scenario for both for two young players as you're trying to craft a career because it's the Gladwell theory. The serve is going to improve with, you know, that millionth repetition. And it's just like if you're going to have a weakness in your game when you're young, have it be the second serve because everyone's second serve is a weakness. And it just feels like when you're, again, nowadays when I look at modern tennis, I don't think it's what's the strength because everyone's got strengths. Everyone's got weapons. It's how easy is it to attack your weakness? And I don't, again, it's very, very hard to even identify weaknesses in the games of Alcaraz and Sinner. And the ones you'd point to is the second serve to which you say, okay, everyone's second serve sucks. So I, I'm not disagreeing with you that they are very good for teenagers now. I think, I, I mean, that's just true. They're but I don't even think it's teenagers. I just think it's period. Like, they're just okay, very so, good. But whatever, what are their ratings right now? Like, Sinner, Sinner's around number 10. I, he's 7 in the, oh, so Sinner is 11, excuse me. Sinner is 11, Alcaraz is 7, which is just okay. incredible. So what I, what my point is, like, I'm not saying they're not great. I'm not saying they're not as good as their ratings because they absolutely are. Their ratings are how good they are. That's just a fact. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the algorithm might be slightly misleading, but I mean, it's basically just a fact. That's how good they are. And that's that's amazing. So is a 20-year-old more likely to improve than a 30-year-old? Absolutely. Every time I'll take that bet. But the average player doesn't improve very much ever. <laughs> like that's, yeah, sure. that's one of those really... It, I need to prove this better and communicate it better. And part of it is I keep doing these like mini studies on my own and coming up with numbers that I don't really believe because we, we all have faith that, yeah, if you practice a lot, you will get better at especially your weaknesses. Like you're talking about the second serve. And once a player is on tour, they tend not to improve that much. Of course, some players do or else no one would ever move up in the rankings, but your your average player if you're if you take a stat like like you're saying return points one or 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 break percentage if you want to bet this person is below the age of 25 are they likely to improve by more than two percentage points between this year and next year um the answer is almost always no you'd almost never take that bet because very few players do that's why it's so remarkable when we talk about someone like sakari or barty who really are improving year in year out they're once in a generation weirdos in that regard most players simply don't part of it is because it's really hard i mean everybody else is improving too um part of it is because they've already hit their millionth serve or whatever the big number is i mean they've all been practicing hard with, with brilliant coaches since they were five years old and part of it is because players are learning their games so i mean 
they need to work hard just to tread water. So I have no doubt they'll work very hard. I have no doubt their coaches will give them good advice. I have no doubt that they will look like better players who have improved in certain ways. What I can't promise you and would not bet on is any specific leap in any specific stat because historically the average player doesn't improve that much. So, I mean, again, if you're picking a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old to be number one someday, obviously you pick Sinner or Alcaraz. Those are the, the top guys right now. But you're picking them based on what they've done already, not because of their potential to improve. So if, like you pointed out, Sinner going from 70 to 80% roughly in, in hold rate, like that looks really great. It was really great. But when he was at 70, it would have been irresponsible to say, this guy looks like he's going to jump to 80. No, I mean, sure. it... it that's the impressive part that he did it. Um, that doesn't mean he's more likely to do it again or someone who looks like him who's holding at 70% is likely to do it. Most players don't. That might be the, I mean, it probably is the biggest jump he will ever make. So play, some players peak early. That's what I was hinting at before looking at the whole population is maybe there aren't a lot of players who've done exactly what they've done up to this age, but you can find players who look very good, who've accomplished a lot on tour by age 21, um, who don't improve that much. And, and Gasquet is a pretty good example of that. So I'm not saying I want anything of this to happen. I'm not saying they're not impressive players so far. I'm just saying you can only extrapolate so far, making bets that players will improve. Um, if, if you looked at what pundits say every year about what players will improve and how much, I would guess they're wrong some enormous amount of the time because there just isn't that much improvement to go around. Three players have achieved their peak ELO. Uh, three top fifty ELO rated players have achieved their peak ELO in their thirties. Can you name them? Is Djokovic one? Djokovic is not, but he was aged twenty eight point eight, which is what spurred me to look this up. Uh, twenty sixteen yeah, Miami really, final is when they. This say is really me. embarrassing because that's the page I was looking at, and I forgot <laughs> there was a peak age column there for you to sort by. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Now I'm mean, looking at the page now, so I, I, I'm cheating, but. PCB is one. Right, Crano Busta, which honestly, that's not surprising because he's been the guy who survived the longest of the Dimitrov, Nishi, you know, that generation. It feels like, you know, he and Schwartzman are the ones surviving. And I looked it up. I think there's only six in the top 50 who did it age 28 or later. But the answer is PCB, Dan Evans, who's obviously had a career year this season. And then Kevin Anderson, which, by the way, checks out. You know, his run, obviously, in, what was that, 2017 to those, I, I want to say it was 2017. I think that's Sounds right. right. Yeah, that's right around there. Ago. Yeah, exactly. It was before COVID, so a different lifetime. Um, but you're right. Like, it, it is interesting to notice when those peaks happen, and very frequently it's, you know, 26 or prior. And, you know, again, I for me, it's that the peak is so high already. I do think that the serve percentages they're just low-hanging fruits for improvement that ever you know you inherently are going to get better on serve the longer you play on tour and i know that doesn't always happen but there's been no indication to me that that will not be the case for these two guys but anyways to your point you're right it's you never want to i'm always down for colette lewisisms and obviously whenever anyone quotes the goat i'm here for it um but yeah i Again, I suppose the 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 take is that they're on pace. So we'll end this this take here. On pace is that fair to say? I mean, to the extent that I don't really accept the premise, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, Kevin Anderson is a great example, and let me give yeah. you a totally totally left field analogy on this. I was reading something about how much 
COVID was affecting um, kids and their and and their educational development. And there there's some example, some study done on kids who lost a lot of time due to some disruption or some, something horrible probably. But it found that if learning math, I think it was at the elementary school level, if you got one really good year um, to make up for all the time you lost, like if, if you were taught all the material, you could catch up really fast. Uh, if you didn't spend like six years getting dribs and drabs of arithmetic and basic algebra, if you just had someone give it to you in a year, you, you could learn it and you could basically catch up. And Kevin Anderson is like not the analogy most people would think of when I tell that when I report that finding, but he basically did that. I mean, he 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 came out of college. He was a solid tour pro for a while, and then he kind of caught up, right? I mean, he he hit his potential, and for him, it was age thirty. For Nicole Vidasova, peak was age sixteen. For Capriotti, maybe it was fourteen, and every player is going to have a different time where it all, it all clicks and nothing bad has happened to, to knock them down again, like an injury or something. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just impossible to know. Like if, if, are we look, are we looking at peak Yonic center right now? I mean, probably not. I would bet against this being peak Yonic center, but there are players who peak at age 20.5 and there aren't very many players who are as good as Sinner is now. So, I mean, if you're looking for players who are likely to have a peak in early age, that's another way of framing the question. Like, sure. it's going to be hard for Sinner to be better than he is now just because there's only so much better he can get. So if there are some players who are going to peak when they're 20 or 21, then, I mean, he he's in position to do that. So that's the opposite of being on pace. He's in position. Uh, and th- that's a negative take, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a more realistic one. Fair. All right. Well, then my last take for you, because I'm always going to keep you over time here. We're going to stick with the teenage theme. Obviously, the big result at the end of the season, the one that caught all of our attention, Emma Raducanu captures the 2021 uh, U.S. Open title. She does it over a fellow teenager in Layla Fernandez and, you know, becomes the first qualifier to win the title, doesn't drop a set on her way from qualifying 10 straight matches, 20 sets won, was a remarkable run unequivocally one we will be talking about and Emma Raducanu is now a name on the radar not just of tennis fans but on sporting fans across the world deservedly so that said you go back in tennis history and I actually went back a little bit further in time because and I didn't include uh Graf or Everett or Navratilova which perhaps I should have because I'm sure they were just as accomplished or close to it by this age but you look through WTA history There are many teenage standouts. In particular, you go by tiers. The gold standard, the GOAT, will never be matched, is what Monica Seles did as a teenager. And essentially, Monica Seles won everything. 90% win percentages across the board, seven slam titles and eight slams just over it, or whatever it was, seven and nine or something crazy like that, just over and over again, title after title after title after title. She set the standard of what's possible. After her, on a tier of her own, comes Martina Hingis, who I believe had five, maybe six slam titles before turning age 20 and was number one in the world. And, you know, again, 
over the 85% threshold, close to 90%, and just was exceptional. Proved what's possible as a teenager. Those two, gold, silver standard. After that, you get to that next tier. Serena, Sharapova, who were competing and I believe had each won one title by the time they had turned age of 12, one Grand Slam title by the time they had turned age 20, and, you know, had both gotten close to number one, if not two, three in the world, were clearly amongst the best of the best on tour. After that, there's a drop-off. And in the tier of players who have won fewer than 70%, but greater than 60% of their matches by the time they turn age 20, at least in the modern era, it is not a long list. You've got Justine Ennin, who obviously went on to do some special things, might be the most underrated player in women's tennis history. I think her peak was that good. You've got Kim, Kim Kleisters in there, who again, we know her success, still playing at this point of her career, a testament to her talent. You've got Bianca Andreescu, who's got the smallest sample size of the group, but she has been, I suppose, was that good by that age. Iga Sviantek, sneakily that good uh, before the age of 20. And then two newcomers that enter that group. And, of course, by sample size, Emma Raducanu also on the smaller side of that scale. But then there's Clara Tossin, who I argue, Jeff, had the better season than Emma Raducanu in 2021. That's my final take for you. Your thoughts? Your take being that Clara Tossin had a better better season than Raducanu? That is my final take. And that they're both much like the others on the pathway. And that it's like as excited as we are for Raducanu, I actually think coming out of 2021, the teenager who I'm most amped for over this next decade is Clara Tossin. It's tough. I mean, it, so much of what uh, uh, of analyzing the WTA season is looking at the strength of opponents. And Raducanu had some good wins. I mean, Sakari and Bencic at the U.S. Open. You can't take those away from her. Um, but I mean, she hardly she hardly had to plow through peak Serena and Venus and players like that to to get there. So. I mean, that right there is a reason to take, you know, if, if her whole resume is built on this one massive accomplishment, then anything you can kind of poke a hole in that accomplishment with is going to, is going to knock some of her, I'm mixing a lot of metaphors here in one sentence. It's going to make her look a little bit worse. I don't want to say worse. And she's great. It's just a matter of how much hype she, she deserves. But I mean, I, you can kind of do the same thing with Tossin too. I mean, I don't know how to compare piling up a bunch of wins against, borderline top 50 players mostly um how that compares against facing down the pressure and winning the few big matches like like Raducanu did it's it's a tough call I mean I, I like that you're making it because of course the, the last few months have just been a non-stop Raducanu celebration um and and Tossin is barely in the limelight at all so I mean I think you're definitely right that she deserves to be in the conversation um I just don't know how to evaluate a season like hers if, if if you're looking at players who are going to be you know, great someday in the future there's just so many i don't know so many i don't i don't i i hate the way we talk about these things i was gonna say mediocre sure. wins like a win is a win like the fact that she won the leon title against non-top 20 wins would be the way i say it or wins outside the top 50 she racked up all the outside the top 50 wins yeah and and she didn't beat anybody ranked better than number 30, Yelena Ostapenko. She only played three of those matches, and they were against Barty, Azarenka, and Krachikova. So it's hardly a fair comparison. But but yeah, she didn't she didn't beat a lot of great players. She, she beat a lot of players who 
if you say she's number 20 in the world, she should be beating. Um, you don't have to say she's number five in the world to make sense of her results. And that, that's what makes it tough. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the, one of the big mysteries for tennis analytics that we've been talking around for the last half an hour is like, how do we look at the results of an 18 year old or a 20 year old and predict what their chances of greatness are? And I'm not sure there's ever going to be a good answer for that because there's so many different career paths someone could take, but it's an, it, I think it's a really, it's a really tasty comparison to make because the Ryder Connor season and the Tossin season are so very different, but I mean, maybe they will be number six and number seven in the year end 2024 rankings. And maybe they'll look like the same player then I, I don't know. Uh, it could, it could really go either way. And maybe you'll, maybe it'll be tossing at number one. We'll be looking back at this 2021 season and thinking, Oh, she won so many matches. We should have seen this coming and no one will expose your good take because nobody does that. But I mean, the, <laughs> the basis is there. I mean, I, you can't dispute that. I just, I just don't quite know what to make of it. I think there's so many players with results like this, that they've proven they can win a lot of matches against second tier competition. And that could mean she goes and wins the Australian Open. I picked her as when we talked last before the U.S. Open. I picked her as my kind of crazy dark horse pick. Um, so I mean, she it, she's in the conversation. Um, she could also never crack the top twenty. Like I like I'm saying again about Alcaraz and Sinner. Like you can't assume improvement from here. She could be a two fifty vulture for the next decade. See, this is why I love having you on the show because I throw my bait line out as far as possible and you just keep reeling me in. And it's just – this is what I enjoy. You're not – so you're not wrong. Here's my counter. 175 matches in her career thus far. How many have Clara Tossin won? I don't know. 120? 134. She's got a 77% win percentage, Jeff, through her first 175 matches. I agree. There are no sure things in sports. There's no denying that. But you know who got an invite to Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club and is officially on the junior membership list? Clara freaking Tossin. Like, she can come eat dinner on the weekends whenever she wants. Golfing privileges have been extended. She's welcome in the workout room. The weapons are so obvious. I like her backhand down the line as much as I like just about anyone's in the women's game. And there's just a... You know, again, there's a computer element to her where she, you can just see her calibrating and recalibrating shot after shot. And you just look at the run at the end of the year, whether it was in you know Luxembourg. She gets wins over Alexandrova, Buzkova, Von Drusova, and Ostapenko. And yeah, they may not have been top 30 players at the time, but the way Ostapenko and Von Drusova were playing post-Olympics, they absolutely were, in my opinion, at that level. And so, you know, again, for her to beat Samsonova on an indoor hardcourt, get a win over an inform and Lee on an indoor hardcourt, you know, she's beat, she got a win over Radakanu literally the week before the U.S. Open in Chicago or two weeks before, whatever it was. And just, I do, like, again, you're right. It's never a straight linear projection uh, for these players and in their improvements. But the weapons are there for Tossin. The desire is there. She's a winner in every press conference. Just, again, her enthusiasm for tennis, you feel it immediately the moment you talk to her. I'm sold. And I do think athletically, that's the question. She's not the best mover. But we've seen it in women's tennis. You don't have to be the most fleet of foot. You don't have to be the Simona Halep to have you know, success at the highest levels. You can be Petra Kvitova where you use your size, you use your length around the court, and you use your ability to play front foot tennis to just hit opponents off the court. And I think Tossin has that gear to her. And you just can't say that about 90 
8% of players. Like, she has a, a degree of power tennis. That's why she's in, welcome to the club. Uh, that you just don't see commonly. And that's why, even beyond the numbers, I if you watch the matches, it's even – like, again, you talk about the level of competition, fine, but she's blitzed everyone she's supposed to blitz, Jeff. Like that 3-6-6-4-6-2 win over Ann Lee? That is – that's – but Ann Lee's that good. Like, I okay, think here's Anne the thing. Lee- first – okay, two things. First of all, I love the, like, breathless excitement in your voice when you said <laughs> she beat Ann Lee. I, I know uh, what the you The female mean. Rublev. Okay. You, you, I'll give you that one, I guess. <laughs> but I don't think there's anyone else in the tennis world who could – execute that sentence the way you did um no i'm 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 on the ann lee bandwagon i guess i'm i'm guessing there's plenty of room for other people who want to join but okay when you're when when you're looking up these comparisons for up to a certain age how many matches have they won on tour or that sort of thing like you're looking up players you think of right sure okay so i'm not saying you need to do this because i mean i I don't want to give you a coding assignment Probably starting no, with you know, learning to code a lot, but but no, I mean, <laughs> the, the way the way you have to do this stuff is look at everybody, and sure. most of the people who come up will be the ones you think of. So maybe maybe it's one hundred percent of your list. I'm guessing it's more like seventy or eighty percent of your list will be the people who you're already looking up. But I meant I threw out Nicole Vitasova's name before. I'll bet her record as a teenager was awesome. I don't I, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to waste my time with the filters on tennis abstract while we're talking, but you have to look at everybody. And th- that's why I mentioned Evgeny Korolev before. Like when you're looking at players who break into the top 100 at the earliest ages, um, one of those guys is Evgeny Korolev. And that's that's your warning. It's like, okay, of people who break into the top 100 before their 18th birthday or whatever, I'm making up these numbers. I don't remember if that's right. But of people who reach certain threshold at certain age, most of them are going to be great. The rest are going to be, most of the rest are going to be okay. And then there's one or two, which are like, who the hell is that person? Who is Evgeny? I don't even remember Evgeny Korolev. I mean, I, I personally do, but there's somebody, there's going to be somebody like that on the list. So when you look at the whole population, you you see that Tossin compares to Shiontek and Henan Kleisters in, in your whole list. But you also find that she tracks the career of someone who you'd never heard of before. Um, and that's that's the warning sign that i i'm trying to talk about is like you obviously pick tossin over almost everyone else her age right now but it's there's no such thing as on pace i'll just repeat myself on that like there's there's no there's no given pace there's always someone in history who's done what this person has done and either gotten injured or just didn't improve anymore or mentally freaked out or whatever happened and ended up, you know, hitting, cracking the top 30 when they're 18.5 and then never cracking the top 25. Uh, and I think if, if, when you do this sort of analysis, you need to know what the percentages are. So maybe it is just one person and you can say, okay, Vyvesova doesn't apply because of X, but if it's like 30% of those people and there's a lot of teenage women who never got better after they were 19, then that changes the whole conversation. And that's what we need to know. Um, so, so either I'll run that study or you can get to work running that study. Um, but that's the, that's the background number I want when we're talking about 20 year old Yannick Sinner or, or is she 18 or yeah, she's 18, almost 19 year old Clara Tossin. Um, like the, the, the term of art is a base rate that like, 
the 18 the base rate for 18 year olds is that a certain percent are going to improve in this much that's what you need to start with um and that's what you don't get when you just compare her to the former slam winners and the like assignment accepted and by the way all right sova 178 and 72 through her age 19 season that number dipped she went 11 and 17 in 2009 so that number dips down to 68 percent that's a good warning sign i like it i know what i'll be doing now is looking for those players and i look you know there's a big list of names i kvitova wozniaki's halips pliskovas of the world who just wozniaki came pretty close but you know did not have the success that these teenagers have had and those are players examples of players who grew on you know got better later throughout the course of their career continue to get better and you're right that is my homework assignment for the next few weeks but i have already kept you far over the exceeded time you know over the time i had promised so any final takeaways anything you didn't get hit uh, get to hit any final thoughts on this 2021 statistical takeaway podcast well I'll give you my last my last two stats lightning round like style do you know off the top of your head how many 30 somethings are in the year-end atp top 15 Ooh, i'm gonna say one and i'm gonna say it's Karino boot oh no no duh, wait that's a lie Djokovic. <laughs> yeah i forgot about Djokovic. i was like he's not because he's ageless uh Djokovic, Kareno Busta is Bautista good top 15. I'm going to say yes. I'll say those three. Oh, and Schwartzman, so four. It's it, Well, Nadal's in the top 15 oh, still, duh. isn't he? I think so. You're right. So five. So it, it feels like there's a lot that are still around. Let me just double check that I'm right because you, you, you're, you're sounding pretty confident for something that does not match the number that I looked up. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we have Djokovic. We have Nadal. And the next 30-something is Roger Federer at number 16. So, so is Carino boosted not? Oh, what are he and Bautista? I'm looking up now. They're 19 and 19 20. 19 and 20. Okay. And Schwartzman's apparently 29. Yeah, um, good for Diego. Yeah, that's a young, 29 in age, not 20. Yeah, he's ranked 13. Not, not in height. Yeah, exactly. 29 centimeters. Um, yeah, okay. There's two. Yeah, this is the generational shift. I've been screaming exactly. about it. I would have, I probably would have guessed Karina Busta or RBA as well, or just kind of assumed there'd be, mm-hmm. it just seemed like for years there were these, these guys hanging around in that range who weren't really factors at slams, but I mean, you couldn't really dislodge them from mm-hmm. number 12 or something, but that's all, that's all gone. And it's, I guess Schwartzman's still there. He's still kind of that guy, but it's, it's, it's new blood in the whole level. And the other one is my final stat is 326. Alex, do you know what happened 326 times in 2021? Six love, six love victories. Oh. At all levels, that's probably about right. I have no idea. It could yeah, be. I have no idea. That might be a better stat than mine. That's how many times Arena Sabalenka double faulted. <laughs> that, the remarkable thing to me, that is the highest number on tour, but the rate, it's a little below 8%, which is crazy high, but... Um, the rate is better than uh, Camilla Georgie, Karolina Pliskova, and Elisa Mertens. I was surprised with Mertens, but yeah. what surprised me the most is her her win percentage on second serves when she gets them in is not that great. Um, she has as, about as big a gap between first serve success, first serve win percentage, and second serve win percentage as anybody else, even if you just take out everybody's double faults and. Watching her at the tour finals, I, I I thought she might be one of those rare cases where it would be better for her to just go for the first serve on both serves. And maybe that's kind of what she was doing. That's generating all those double faults. If that's what she's doing, she's doing a horrible job of it. Uh, <laughs> she's I think she's winning like 58% of second serve points. Um, 
except if you exclude double faults, which and it's not good. She wins 72% of first serve points. So just given how often she hits bombs and often misses them on second serves, it seems like a huge missed opportunity. So you were talking earlier about, you know, the weak second serve everybody has and, and can improve on when they're young. I wouldn't really have thought about that with Sabalenka except to cut down the double faults, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of room for improvement there. Maybe not 326 double faults worth of improvement, <laughs> but a lot of improvement. Yeah. No, I, I, which is, I think she finished fifth in hold percentage in 2021. And yeah, it's just like eight over an 8% double fault rate is delightful. That epitomizes the Sabalika experience. And yeah, why not just go for two first serves? When she's landing first serves, there are times when she's untouchable. And one of my other favorite stats, I think the final number was like, I think it was 17 out of her, or 16 out of her 19 losses, something like that, whatever that final number was. However many losses she had, minus three were three set losses on the year. Like, that's the Sabalenka experience in a nutshell. And, yeah, it, it feels like, again, she it's the low-hanging fruit. We still haven't found the combination, but someone's going to get there in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. They're going to unlock it. And I think I'm going to pick Sabalenka to win every women's slam until she does, just so that eventually I'm right on the slam that she does win it. I've been on that for two years, maybe more. <laughs> I picked her to win 2020 Wimbledon. They didn't even have the tournament. <laughs> Well, then she didn't lose it, so you weren't she wrong. Did. She didn't lose it. So one one last number for you in a totally shameless plug. I know you, you've, you've hearted this tweet, but um, I, I just wrote this thing on my website about all the historical women's tennis data I've added, and someday we'll get a chance to talk about it. The stat is 247,000. That is how many women's tennis matches I've added to the Tennis Abstract database in the last year. Um, and I'm now fully back to 1920 and working on 1919. So that's all a searchable, searchable database of over 100 years of women's tennis history. And I, uh, I'm i going to uh, in, in encroach on our friendship. Is that the right word? And sure. I'm going to do something to our friendship and insist that we talk about this someday. Not today, because we've been at it for so long, but we'll do it again soon. I would love to... In, tell well, you extremely boring and detailed things about no, 100 years of women's tennis history i will do it we'll schedule it for later this month that's a december podcast david kane invited himself on the show last week and he's like we're talking about the wta awards and i was like david all i've ever wanted is to get to a point where people are inviting themselves on the show <laughs> i was like that is all that was every that was the goal and so yes you are always welcome back on the show we'll talk about that i want to talk about your best clip i mean some people read the newspaper every morning. I read your clips of the 1922 newspaper just to know, okay, here was the storyline. It's always great. Like, tennis opens gates. And you're like, hey, did you know that we used to open gates in 1920? I just – <laughs> it's delightful. Okay, good. I will keep them coming. Yeah, I don't know if it's just for me. But if it is just for me, it's a win. Um, but, yes, as always, and people know – tennisabstract.com match charting project we can all contribute you're at tennis abstract which everyone will know by following my tennis you know feed because it's at least once a day you'll get that tag from me uh anything else did i miss anything i think that covers it all right well as always then jeff happy belated thanksgiving to you and your family hope you enjoyed this holiday season be safe be healthy we will talk to you later this month all right thanks alex bye-bye Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis Abstract's Jeff Sackman. A thank you to him, as always, for taking the time to chat. And as you heard, 
at the end of that show. We're going to be talking to Jeff later in December as we truly geek out, start talking 100 years of tennis history, start talking about some of the fun things he is doing with the match charting project over at Tennis Abstract. And obviously, if you're a listener to these podcasts, you've heard me refer to Tennis Abstract just about every show that we do. It is the must-use, must-have resource for all of us who want to follow the game closely. And I cannot thank Jeff and everyone who's put in time with the match charting project, everyone who's contributed anything to Tennis Abstract enough for creating that resource for us. It makes us better educated fans. It just makes the entire tennis world a better place. So, of course, if you aren't already, go support Jeff's work at Tennis Abstract. And if you aren't already, follow all of the statistical trends yourself by going to tennisabstract.com today. But, of course, it's off-season mode now. What does that mean? It means we're going to be talking to a lot of our returning champions here over the next few weeks as we talk about the most significant players most significant storylines, most significant developments that occurred over the past year or that we are looking towards occurring in 2022. Uh, For all of that content, you're going to be able to head over to our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel so that you don't miss out on anything. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our Super producers Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff for the of an any job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our fantastic guests, Jeff Sackman, Super Producers Fliegner and Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.